invite you to turn your Bible this morning to Luke chapter 24, Luke chapter 24, and if you would keep your Bible handy, we're going to be looking at a few passages. I don't have an outline for you this morning, there's just two basic points that I think will be easily uh, discernible, and, um, but I encourage you to uh, just keep your Bible handy. As we're going to look at this morning, the glory of Easter, Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin reading at verse 13, and we'll read through 27, focusing on verse 26. This is, of course, the, the day of resurrection, and Jesus uh, appears to two disciples who are uh, walking back home from Jerusalem, uh, devastated at all that's happened, and this is the, the wonderful conversation that the Lord has with them. Uh, That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? What a question uh, to ask the Lord. And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones! And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. Well, God in heaven, our desire today is to see the glory of Christ and, and to revel in the miracle of what you accomplished, Father, in his death and resurrection, for your glory, for your name's sake, and for our eternal good. And so we ask you to give us ears to hear, that your spirit would accompany your word with power, that we would, um, Lord, be convicted of our sin and drawn to faith and deep assurance all afforded to us freely in the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Someone sent me a uh, very interesting article recently entitled, For God So Loved His Worth, written by Marshall Segal. God So Loved His Worth, uh, taken clearly as a play off John 3.16, God So Loved the World. And in the article, the uh, the author made the, the point that American believers... Um, lose some of the wonder of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ because we have this nasty tendency of making the gospel story primarily about us. 
when actually it's primarily about God and about the glory of God. He writes, many of us, quote, miss the glory of Passion Week because deep down we assume that we are the center of the story. We read the Gospels and write ourselves into the lead role. We are the star who was worth everything Jesus had had to suffer in order to save us. Now, you think that he might be overstating it. Um, I think that's exactly what's taking place. He doesn't, if you just do a little a search on your internet, uh, you'll come up with uh, Todd White, a popular uh, evangelist, often on TBN, who makes the argument that uh, Christ died on uh, behalf of mankind because mankind was worth dying for. So he says, quote, the cross to me is, is not the revelation of my sin. The cross is actually the revealing of my value. And you can only imagine the set uh, there on TBN and people nodding affirmatively. Uh, Rick Warren recently wrote an article, um, How the Cross Proves Your Value. He said, Jesus did not die for junk. A contemporary Christian band called Mike's Chair sings a song uh, with the chorus, Jesus, help me to believe that I'm someone worth dying for. It's quite catchy, actually. It's just awful theology. Jesus, help me to believe that I'm someone worth dying for. And so there will be messages preached all over the country today about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where the, the pastor will uh, use the cross and the resurrection of Christ to affirm the value of you, of the listener. And in so doing, they will fundamentally misrepresent Scripture and miss the point of the cross. A Good Friday and Easter, friends, did not happen to magnify the worth of fallen men and women. It's not the point. Now, um, let me say a couple things quickly before I, I lose you. Uh, one is that the Bible obviously very clearly does affirm the value of human life. The Bible is the one that tells us that we are not cosmic accidents that have just happened to uh, evolve over the course of uh, millions of years and all purely by chance, thus having no significance and no meaning whatsoever. But the Bible tells us that man uh, was made in the very image of God. And that God himself then places a high value on the work of his hands. Those who bear his image. And God clearly um, values his blood-bought children. Who not only have been made in his image, but have been recreated and are being formed into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ, his son. And so Jesus tells his disciples in Matthew 10 verses 29... Uh, are not two sparrows sold for a farthing, and not one of them shall fall to the ground without your father? Fear not, therefore, you are of more value than many sparrows. So we need to uphold the biblical value of human life because it matters to God. And because we live in a culture that is at war with this wonderful truth. Uh, it, it's interesting that uh, at the one and the same time, you have a culture that is screaming about a self-worth and self-esteem, and at the same time, ripping the foundation of any real esteem or worth out from underneath us as it denies the biblical message of creation and recreation instead for a poor gospel of 
Darwinianism. So the world's at war with those made in the image of God and the value of human life. And, and we see that in uh, the evilness of, of, of murder and uh, the horror of abortion, where the world cares not a whit for those who've been created in God's image. And so we need to take a stand as God's people, according to the word of God, and let God be true and every man a liar. Um, the, the Bible establishes the fact of human worth as God's image bearer and, and God's concern for his children, who he deems of more value than many sparrows. However, our worth is not innate, but derivative. In other words, uh, we're not worthy because of what we are inherently. We are worthy because of what God has made us. You see, we, we, our, our value is attached to the image of the one, uh, to the one whose image we bear. We are, we are made in the image of God. And it is, it is that fact and, and the reality of the glory of God, the value of God, that is where our value comes from. It's, it's derivative. It's not innate. Remember, we are made of dirt, aren't we? Scripture says we are. So the only worth that we actually do possess is, is the, the worth that has been placed into us by God because of God and for God, both as creatures and as Christians who've been redeemed, bought with um, the, the blood of his son, not again because of the greatness of our value, but the greatness of God's value. And so consequently, nowhere in scripture do we see the cross being um, put forward as the evidence of the value of men. When the scriptures want to use the cross to magnify the glory of something, the worth of something, the, 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 the majesty and beauty of something, it never points to um, those who uh, were purchased by the cross. It always points to the, the one who accomplished the work. It points to the justice of God and the mercy of God and specifically the love of God. The cross magnifies the love of God in this God showed his love for us that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh, how great, what manner of love the Father has given to us. So nowhere does the Bible uh, do what these, uh, these men I mentioned earlier so confidently affirm that it, that it does. Uh, John Piper was once asked this question. They have a, uh, asked, you know, asked the pastor sort of thing. And uh, someone asked, doesn't the cross affirm uh, the value, the innate value of a sinner? And Piper says, no, no, no. The cross affirms, uh, the cross testifies to the infinite value of the glory of God. It testifies to the enormity of human sin in belittling the glory of God. And it testifies to the immeasurable greatness of the grace of God. And so uh, Marshall Seagal writes, God did not write Holy Week into history because he was desperate to have you, but because loving you contrary to everything you deserved, would display just how loving he is, how glorious he is. And he goes on to say, God really does love you, right? Genuine affection, fatherly provision, sacrificial devotion, tender care, but not because you're great, but because he is great. I think that's wonderful. 
The primary wonder and glory and joy of Easter is, is the way that it manifests and magnifies the titanic greatness and monumental goodness and inestimable glory of God. That's the wonder and the glory of Easter. And, and only when we grasp that, you see, do we really get the cross and the resurrection. And so what I'd like to do this morning is show you this from Scripture. But you know, this is not just um, me up here giving you my two cents. This is the message of Scripture, and it's a message that we often overlook and, and don't see. Because, you see, we generally look at Easter and the cross from our perspective, what it accomplished for us, and, and that there is no sin, obviously, in that. We need to see and believe all that God has done for us in the cross. However, there's another perspective, and that is the perspective of Jesus, what did Easter mean for, for Jesus? What, did, what was it about for him? What was on his mind? Well, we're going to see that for Jesus, it was Easter, the, the cross and Easter together were about glory, his glory and the Father's glory. And we see that, for instance, um, here in Luke 24. And so my first point is this, Easter is about the glory of God. Easter is about the glory of God. And so it's, it's Resurrection Sunday. Jesus has um, gloriously been raised from the dead. And these two disciples are they're just, a, just a tangled mess of emotions. And they, they, they know that Jesus died. They know where he was buried. And yet some have come and said he's alive. But they clearly don't still get it or understand it or believe it because they're sad. They're very sad. They're, they're still grieving the loss of Jesus. The, they're, they're grieving a dead Jesus, even though the living one is, is right there talking to them face to face. And so Jesus asked them what they're concerned about, and they said, are you the only one, I just love that question, are you the only one in all Jerusalem who has no idea what happened? To ask Jesus that question. And then Jesus asked them this question. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory. And, there, and I'd like just to pause there and, uh, and ask you to pay attention because when we read the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ through our perspective, what it meant, first of all, for us, it's not how we would say it. If, if I would ask you, why was the death and resurrection of Christ necessary you would say it was necessary so that I could be forgiven. It's necessary so that um, the, the sinners could be redeemed, which is true. But, it, but that's not how Jesus says it. Jesus says it is necessary that the Christ should suffer and then enter into his glory. That there's something about glory here. In, in Jesus' mind, his death and resurrection are about glory. And the Gospel of John, more than any other gospel, really highlights the truth of that. Uh, in John chapter 12, Jesus says, now is the hour, as, he, as he's approaching the cross, now is the hour for the Son of Man to be glorified. That's what it meant for Jesus. If you have your Bible, turn to John chapter 17, where we find this explicitly clear. John chapter 17 we're going to just read the first few verses. John 17, verses 1 through 5. 
This is the high priestly prayer of Christ. This is hours before he goes to the cross. And he's talking with his disciples, and now he talks to his father. John 17, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So Jesus here first prays, a father, glorify your son, that the, that the son may glorify you. And then verse 5, uh, glorify uh, your son, excuse me, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the foundation of the world. So in Jesus' mind, as he's going to the cross, his, his passion is glory. His prayer is glory. Father, glorify me. Says it twice, verse 1 and verse 5. Now, just as, as an aside, what a wonderful evidence of the deity of Jesus Christ. That, that he can ask his Father, give me the glory, and specifically the glory that I had with you from before the beginning of the world. No, no man right, would pray this. Where, where in, the, in the scriptures do you find Peter or, or Paul or, or, or John praying, uh, Father, glorify me? You never see it because they're just men. And yet Jesus unashamedly, unabashedly, unapologetically prays for, the, for glory that the Father would glorify him and specifically with the glory that he had with the Father from all eternity. Now, why does Jesus pray that the Father would glorify him? And the answer is that the Son may glorify you. This was the, this was the, the, the beating heart of Jesus' ministry in the world. His, his desire, his food was to do the will of him who sent him. John 8, 29, I always do the things that are pleasing to him. That is the Father. In verse 4 here, Father, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work you gave me to do. Uh, John 17, 4. Then look at verse 1 again. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. So, so I just hope we get a sense that as, the, as Jesus comes to the cross and as he's, as he's talking to his father about what is to come, it's not, first of all, about you. It's first of all about this relationship between the Father and between His Son. It's, it's first of all about glory for God. It's, it's first about that. So Seagal says, on Monday, Thursday, Jesus was betrayed for God and His glory. On Good Friday, He was crucified for God and His glory. On Easter Sunday, He was raised for God, for His glory. And in all of it, we were saved for God and His glory. But we have to first, I think, to catch the wonder of Easter, yeah, we got a sense that we just got to take ourselves out of the picture just for a moment and see what, it's, what this is 
really about what's going on between the Father and the Son. Because you see, just as the Son is desiring the glory of the Father, the Father is desiring the glory of the Son. It's reciprocal. Jesus testifies about this in John 8, verse 50. He says, I do not seek my own glory, but there is one who seeks it, and he will judge. Well, who is that? What's the Father? John 8, 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me. And so the work of redemption, you see, is primarily about the Son glorifying the Father and the Father glorifying the Son. The hour has come, John 12, 23, for the Son of Man to be glorified to the glory of his Father. And so that is what now Jesus prays. Father, glorify me that I might glorify you. Father, glorify me as, as I complete the redemption, the, the plan of redemption, as I submit all the way to death. Glorify your name as you raise up the Son, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Glorify your, your faithfulness to all the promises you made in Scripture past. Glorify your covenant faithfulness. Glorify your justice as sin is actually met and dealt with in the death of your son. Glorify your love as sinners are actually cleansed and purified and their sins are atoned for. Their guilt is washed away in the sacrifice of your son. Father, glorify your son as I go through the cross and the grave. Glorify me with resurrection life. Glorify me with ascension glory, the glory I had with you before the world began. That's his prayer. And God the Father answers that prayer. In 1 Peter 1.21, Peter speaks about God who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory. The Father answered the prayer. Philippians 2, Paul captures this as words that, that you know. Therefore, because he was obedient even to death of the cross, therefore God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. God glorified his son. Why? So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The same reciprocal truth. God the Father glorifies the Son, giving Him the name above every name so that the glory of God the Father would be exalted and magnified. And so you see, this is surely what Jesus has in mind as He, as he speaks with these two disciples. It, was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer and to enter into His glory? Isn't it, he's just telling him, isn't this the grand theme of Scripture? The glorifying of God the Father and the glorifying of the Messiah the Son? Isn't, isn't this what God told Egypt, uh, the, the, the Israelites as he brought them out of Egypt? It's not for your namesake. It's not, for, it's not because you're so valuable. It's not because you're such a great people that I'm rescuing you. You're a stiff-necked people. You're the least of all the nations in the world. It is for my namesake that I do this. It's for my glory. That's, that's a theme of, of all of Scripture. And so we find that the cross and the resurrection is about, first of all, the magnifying of the, of the, of the glory, the majesty of God. And so, and so Paul will say in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, he describes the gospel as, quote, the gospel of the glory of Christ. 
It's the good news about the glory of Jesus. Now, why is a message that is specifically about the glory of Jesus and the glory of the Father and not about the glory of you, the value of man, why is this really good news? Well, Seagal says, if we're humble enough to be the small, hopeless sinner rescued by sovereign grace for his glory, the news gets better, not worse, we will be far happier in a world that's not centered on us. And so I'd like to look at uh, just fleshing that out. What is the good news about a gospel that is about the glory of God the Father and a gospel that is about the glory of God the Son? Well, here it is, the second point. Easter is about the glory of God for you. The glory of God for you. You see, the, this great work of redemption is not fundamentally about you. It's not about you, but praise be to God, it is absolutely for you. Christ died for us, Paul says, Romans 5, verse 8. Isaiah 53, we can, right, he bore our griefs. He carried our sorrows. He was crushed for our iniquities, and by his wounds, we have been healed. By his death, we have been brought to life. Everything that Jesus accomplishes in his death and resurrection for the glory of God is accomplished for sinners. We're the fruit of his passion to magnify the glory of his Father. And you see the same magnificent reciprocal principle operating here. Remember that we talked about how the Father and the Son, each is, uh, Jesus is seeking the glory of, uh, that the Father would glorify him, that he might glorify the Father. The Father is seeking the glory of his Son, that the Father might be praised and glorified. You, you see the same sort of thing happening in our redemption. You see, the glory that is maybe the most astounding in, in all the glory of Easter is that, is that God has done all of this to bring you to glory, to the praise of his glory. The gospel, you see, actually is a gospel of the glory of God who glorifies sinners to the glory of his name. The gospel is about this work of God in his son, exalting his son, but in that glorifying you, the sinner, to the glory of his name. You find that throughout the letters. Romans, let me give you a few. Romans 5 2. 5 2. Paul says, Through him, Jesus, we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. We rejoice in the firm confidence, the utter, absolute, unshakable assurance that we will participate in the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4.17 This light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 Maybe one of the most clear. 2 Thessalonians 2.14 To this he called you through our gospel that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 4, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You see, friends, 
the cross and the, and, and the empty tomb, it's the guarantee of, of all of that. What, what Christ purchased for you, the sinner, in his death was glory. Your, your, your eternal experience of glory, his glory given to you. That's what he purchased. And what he guaranteed for you, the sinner, in his resurrection was that this eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison that you're going to experience in the glorious presence of God. Jesus says in John 17, 22, the glory, he says to, to his father, the glory you've given to me, I have given to them. So do you see how pathetic and backward and pitiful a man-centered gospel is? Just, just hang with me. You see, while we desperately try to use the cross to affirm our self-worth, Jesus was dying on the cross to robe us in the glory of his worth. While we seek to use the story of redemption to exalt ourselves, Jesus is dying to exalt the Father, and the Father responds by exalting the Son, and in that, we, the worthless sinners, are exalted with Christ before the Father, all to the praise of his glorious grace. It's about him. Ephesians 1, verses 5 and 6. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ to the praise of his glorious grace. Ephesians 1, 12. So that we were who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. This is, you see, God fulfilling his promise back in Isaiah chapter 61 to grant to those who mourn in Zion, to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. We get to be vessels displaying the glory of God as we share in the glory of God. You see, this is a better gospel than, than any gospel of self-worth. This, this is a gospel that magnifies God, and, and, and there's nothing better or higher than that. There's nothing, there's nothing more, more valuable than, than, than something that, that honors and glorifies God. And so, and so that's, just, that's just true. And, and when, we, when we get to heaven and we see what God really is, when, when faith falls away and we, and we live by sight... The glory of, of heaven is going to be the glory of God and that, and, and that we get to, to, to eternally, you see, praise him. But you see, this is also a better gospel because there's more joy in the gospel of the glory of Christ than in the gospel of the glory of man, the glory of your value. And let me wrap with answering why is that true. Well, you see, because... The gospel of a God who saved you when you were thoroughly unworthy is a gospel of infinite love. And there is far more joy in being loved than feeling yourself to be worthy. It's not even a contest. Who are the happiest people in the world? Are they the people who are most confident about their own worth? who are very, very confident that they matter, that they're somebody. Are those the happiest people in the world? You, you, you think about the self-esteem movement that we've seen the last 20 years. Has that produced 
A generation of exceedingly happy, joyful, confident people. It's devastated human happiness. Who are the happiest? It's those who feel that they are loved. Deeply loved. And again, it doesn't mean that you're not valuable and that we shouldn't just marvel at at what we are and made in the image of God and and, and the value of that and what we are as the children of God. But But you see, that is not why Jesus died for you and it is not the joy of the Christian. The joy of the Christian is, is reflected in Paul's words again in Galatians 2.20. Uh, the, the life that I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Did you, did you see how when we were reading the, the, the Gospel of John, the, the story of Easter, do you remember how John referred to himself? He doesn't name himself, does he? He talks about Peter and the other disciple. Well, who's this other disciple? Well, he's the one whom Jesus loved. That's John. His name doesn't matter. What matters is that he's been loved. Jesus loves him. That's his identity. That's how he describes himself. He said the the cross doesn't exist to testify to how valuable we are, but how loved you are. God shows his love for us in this while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And secondly, this is a better gospel for greater joy because you see, the gospel of a God who saved you for his name's sake, for his glory, when you were utterly unworthy, will bring you to worship one who is worthy. We get to finally see what matters, what is, what, what, what is true, what, what is actually glorious. It's, it's, not, it's not me, it's not you. It's it's God. And you see, there's infinitely more joy in worship and giving glory to to one who is actually worthy than than trying to to put together some sense of self-value through the cross. Do you understand? Giving glory and praise is what love loves to do. If you think about the fellowship of the Trinity... What, what is the dynamic? Well, the dynamic of the Trinity is love. And how does that magnify itself within the Trinity? It is a giving of glory. So, so the, the Father is glorifying the Son, and the Son is glorifying the Father. And the Holy Spirit is at work to manifest the glory of the Son and the Father. You see, and, and friends, the, the wonder of Easter, the glory of Easter is that in the death and resurrection of of Christ, God glorified his son and the son glorified his father. And in that event, you were brought into this holy fellowship of glory. So that God will glorify you in his presence to the glory of his name. You see, this just... This blows all of our categories in a sense. When we realize that, the, that Easter and the cross and, and the resurrection is not first of all about you. It's first of all about God and his goodness and his justice and his love and his grace and his glory. And that you have been caught into, up into the fellowship of glory if you are a child of God. If you've come to faith in Jesus Christ, you've been caught up in glory. Glory. 
Glory in the presence of God. That's the glory of Easter. The most, the most stupendous, astounding thing has taken place for, for, for you and for me in Christ in, in the death and resurrection of our Lord. And so how, how would we apply this? Two very quick things. First, let's remember the gospel is not about you. It's not about you. The gospel is about God. The gospel is about the glory of God. The most magnificent thing in all the universe, in all time and eternity. It's, it's first of all about him. But then secondly, you see, once we grasp that, now we sense the, the true marvel and wonder of it because this gospel about the glory of God, the glory of Christ, the glory of the Father is a gospel where God has glorified his name by inviting you into the glory. It's not just about being saved from your sins. It's not just about you don't have to go to hell when you die. The gospel is about God has called you into the glory of Christ, that you obtain, Paul says, the glory of the Son. I just want to invite you to think about what that's going to mean for you. I want to invite you to think about what is that going to mean for the things that you get anxious about and worried about and angry about and frustrated about. As you take this incredible truth of what God has done for you in Jesus Christ and you apply it to the the reality where we live. But to remember, you see, this is not first of all about me. It's first of all about him. And it is secondarily about me in the most magnificent way. God has called me in Christ to participate in the glory of knowing him and worshiping him and magnifying him forever. Let's begin today. Let's pray. Oh God, our Father in heaven, what an astonishing thing. We, Lord, confess that we so easily make the Bible and the gospel, first of all, about us. And in so doing, we miss the beauty, the magnificence, the glory of it. And Lord, we need your help so that our eyes can see What an astonishing thing this is. We thank you so much for our Savior who went to that cross for the glory of his Father. So that the Father could be proven to be faithful and just and loving and gracious. And oh Father, thank you that you've glorified your Son. As you show that his sacrifice is sufficient. As you gather in all of those for whom Christ died. And you apply to them all the benefits of his life and death and resurrection and and ascension. And that one day you will present every single one of them without spot and with great joy. Cleansed by the blood of Christ. Made alive by the life of Christ. That Jesus might be glorified as the great savior of sinners and king of kings and lord of lords. And oh father what what a mystery that you've invited us into the delight of eternal glory. The glory, Lord, that we will know in heaven of being in your presence and worshiping you, magnifying the Son and the Father as we walk perfectly in the Spirit. Father in heaven, I pray that these just astounding things would be ours by faith and that they would transform how we think and live and what we we worry about and what we hope for 
as we wait for the blessed appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, where we know that we, by grace alone, will be crowned with glory and honor. May that day come soon. In Jesus' name, amen.